the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Welcome to Panhandle Live on the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST. Broadcasting from the Hoppy Kerchival Building in Martinsburg. And it is Panhandle Live for this 8th day of February 2024. Broadcasting as always from the Hoppy Kerchival Building here in Martinsburg. And as always, Country Roads attire and auto is what propels us here on Panhandle Live. Uh, we've got a busy show to uh, come over the next couple of minutes or so. Some very special guests and some very interesting stories that we're excited to tell. I'm Luke Wiggs, joining me in studio, Marsha Kavalik. Marsha, how are you on this Thursday? Good morning. It's a busy news day. It's been a busy news week. You can go over to panhandlenewsnetwork.com and see some of the local stories that we've been working on, as well as a link to some of the Metro News stories as well. You can always go to metronews.com and see some of those statewide stories, including a link to the uh, entire debate, the gubernatorial debate that happened in Glade Springs earlier this week that was moderated by one Hoppy Kirchville. Uh, he talked about it a little bit in his uh, commentary, which is kind of an interesting take, uh, because I, I think we were all kind of looking to see who who the perceived winner of the gubernatorial debate was, and I, it probably uh, boils down to who you you know who your man is in the race. But uh, that's kind of an interesting take. Also, yesterday after the show closed, we got word from Alert Berkeley that the 911 lines were down, uh, and then we got word that in Morgan County the 911 lines were down uh, into the call center for the dispatch. Um, and uh, you know, we followed that story. We gave updates throughout the morning until uh, that got resolved. Turns out there was. Uh, a STEM issue in, uh, uh, regarding a trunk issue regarding Frontier uh, that affected. Uh, they knew about four counties, uh, but uh, one of the counties they didn't include was Berkeley, but they were obviously, there There were problems when you try to just call a regular uh, phone number, not just the, the dispatch number. So um, I'm glad they got that resolved, but a good solid half an hour at least uh, folks uh, had a little bit of difficulty getting into dispatch. Well, can you take us through that timeline? Like you mentioned, it really started to kick off right after we were finished with Panhandle Live yesterday, and it seemed as though you know we weren't sure what the scope of the issue was when the news first broke, how many counties it affected, you know what kind of services were affected, and, and an extreme credit both to the communication that you were able to have with dispatch to say, you know, this is what's not available right now, and here's the alternatives you can take, and then to very quickly fix the issue. Right. So um, all told, it, it appeared from uh, when Alert Berkeley sent the note out till um, when it looked like it got resolved in the county, probably about an hour process. But I think there were lingering issues. And Frontier said they believed that the issues had been resolved by 1 p.m. So that's kind of a longer stint. Uh, Morgan County had been encouraging their folks all morning to use the text to 911 feature that that is available for them but uh you know it it obviously is a scary moment in services like that if someone is trying desperately to call what everyone's been trained to call all the time you know if you've got an emergency call 911 and then for whatever reason it's not working uh it's good to have alternates um and we try to get the word out as quickly as possible uh in our capacity here and um you know hopefully that kind of thing doesn't become any kind of, a, you know, my, my first thought was what if this is some sort of cyber attack mm -hmm. or um, act of terrorism? Uh, but, you know, thankfully it wasn't that and it got resolved pretty 
uh, quickly, and they had alternate ways that folks could contact 911. Additional articles you can find, PanhandleNewsNetwork.com. Had some traffic incidents uh, over the last couple of days, that truck hauling fish in the Reckner Hatchery Road. We've got an article on that. Uh, what happened on I-81 uh, and that Franklin County crash. Uh, and also a couple of other stories regarding the Berkeley County Board of Education. And uh, an interesting story, uh, breaking down our conversation we had with uh, new Berkeley County Sheriff Rob Blair. And I did want to touch on that, Marsh, because we played a couple of those clips throughout our news product here in the morning. And I think one of the most interesting takeaways for me, and you kind of get, you know, through a show like this one, a peek behind the curtain of what goes on in the life of a sheriff. And it's not just as a lawman. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, it's not kicking down the saloon doors. You know, Rob Blair talked about the administrative side of things, his responsibilities as sheriff that, you know, he's growing into and a lot of responsibilities that people doesn't, don't necessarily know that a sheriff has. And also the the fact that he he's leaning on what he considers a very, you know, capable staff that some of them have been working there for decades and, um, you know, for that arm of it. It's very interesting because I know, you know, a sheriff can be elected who has no law enforcement experience. That, that can happen. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are very important aspects to that job, of course, that are law enforcement. And they're funded through a public safety uh, arm in the budget. That's, you know, kind of where their funding comes through. Um, but, uh, you know, you could go into that position with no law enforcement background at all. Uh, clearly, his uh, wheelhouse is law enforcement, and he's leaning on the folks who uh, have been there, established, know what they're doing to handle some of that, the tax information. I know he'll probably, you know, get up to speed, but um, if you want to hear some of those select excerpts, as well as a link to our entire conversation with uh, now uh, current Sheriff Rob Blair, uh, that's at that article at panhandlenewsnetwork.com. Also, our Al Gage audits a lot of the community meetings, and one of the things that he uh, does that's very valuable is um, the Board of Education meetings, and he sussed out several um, impactful parts of that conversation where they were, um, you know, having discussions about and uh, making budget decisions about some things regarding uh, extending a contract for special ed cameras and in the Berkeley County classrooms, uh, also budget and levy information, and that's there. Uh, There are actual clips from the meeting that you can click on and, and hear relevant clips to um, to what is being said in the article. So that's all at panhandlenewsnetwork.com. And I would encourage you to stay tuned for our top of the hour news product that runs from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. We're going to be playing some cuts, uh, and we appreciate the, the work done by Al, like you mentioned. Uh, if you missed the sports show, of course, we've got a live broadcast tonight. We've got a Shepherd football recruiting article that's coming out today at uh, panhandlenewsnetwork.com. But we're just getting started here on Panhandle Live. Uh, we'll set the table for another edition of Metro News Talk Line coming up here in just a couple of moments as well as Hoppy is live from the Capitol. And then we've got some fantastic guests. We're going to talk to some filmmakers. And uh, the 167th Airlift Wing, as we mentioned yesterday, uh, is going to make an appearance as well. And it's always a fun conversation with them. So we're just getting started. Stay tuned. It's Panhandle Live. Local news now at panhandlenewsnetwork.com. Now back to Panhandle Live. And Panhandle Live, as always, driven by Country Roads Tire and Auto, taking you home with full-service auto care with a higher level of care with two locations to proudly serve you in Martinsburg and Hedgesville. Online, too, at countryroadstire.com today. If you missed any or part of our previous conversation, any of the conversation we're going to have today with our fantastic guests, we're going to be podcasting this episode on our Panhandle News Network Spotify coming up here in just a couple of moments. But speaking of those guests, Marsha, one of them joins us on the phone now. That's right. Joining us via phone, president of Three Roads Communication and the executive producer of The House on Jonathan Street, Russ Hodge. Welcome in. Welcome, and thank you. I appreciate being with you. 
Uh, so we're we're here to talk about the house on Jonathan Street. It is a film, uh, and it is related to a house in nearby in nearby Hagerstown. So walk us through the process of discovering this place. Uh, it was quite an accident that this uh, historic landmark was discovered. It, it really was. It, it's uh, it's a great story. As filmmakers, that's what attracted us to it. Um, before I forget, too, this is a national PBS program, and it will be airing all throughout the country um, during the month of February. Maryland Public TV, which I know your viewers can get, will be uh, able to uh, to watch it on March 25th at 9 p.m. in prime time. It'll also be on WETA from uh, Washington. But the story itself concerns this uh, little log cabin on Jonathan Street which, as people who know Hagerstown know, is, is somewhat notorious, uh, shall we say. And uh, there was a cop car that was chasing a suspect the wrong way down Jonathan Street uh, back in 2018 during a rainstorm, split off the road, crashed into this tiny little house, uh, and the city went to condemn the house. Uh, they started pulling off the siding, and a man named Joel Murbaugh, who's a uh, uh, demolition company, Allegheny Demolition, uh, was doing the work, realized that as soon as they pulled the siding off, that this was no ordinary log cabin. Um, and he stopped the demolition, uh, got in touch with people in the community, uh, particularly two financial advisors, uh, Reggie Turner and uh, Terrence Moore. They got Preservation Maryland involved. They brought out archaeologists, and it turns out that the log cabin was made from wood that came from Jonathan Hager, the European founder of Hager's Town. So this log cabin was really witness to the 300 years, the last 300 years or so, of uh, Hagerstown history. So we used the log cabin to tell the story of Hagerstown history and American history and the history of the people who lived on Jonathan Street, intertwining them all together. And the cabin almost becomes a character in the story itself because it's been a witness uh, to, to everything that's happened in the past 300 years. What did the cabin become emblematic of that was you know, most notable to you as you were putting this piece together? It's a great question. Uh, as I said, you know, Jonathan Street is, has a reputation, and um, there had been a number of other historic structures that had been torn down on the street uh, just a year or so beforehand. There was one right down the street that was too far gone to be uh, restored. Um, so that's how there was a kind of a whole mechanism in place. And when this house uh, became available and was condemned, that there were people who knew what to do and to get to stop the uh, condemnation from happening. But what it really became emblematic of is, is, you know, fighting the system, fighting against forces that have been in place for a long time, um, preserving what is near and dear to people and telling a, uh, a more complete story. It, it's interesting, we did a TV show last night about it as well, and the consensus is that this really has helped turn around the fortunes on that street, and that's going to be an ongoing process. It's not like this cabin can do everything itself, but I mean, housing prices on the street really have gone up 50% or more in the past couple of years since this was uh, rehabilitated and put on the market. And the street itself seems to be bouncing back. And, and one of the points of the documentary is, um, you know, as Hagerstown goes, so goes Jonathan Street. But as Jonathan Street goes, so goes Hagerstown. Um, one of, we interviewed 
we did about 40-some-odd interviews for this, and one of them was with a man named Bob Bucci, who has been the mayor on and off for the past 20 years or so in Hagerstown. And he made a very, very good point, which was that you can't have one area in a town uh, not doing well and expect the town to do well. It's all interconnected. So that's what it's really emblematic of. Our guest this morning is Russ Hodge. He is the president of Three Roads Communications, the executive producer of The House on Jonathan Street. Among the conversations, I'm sure it became a challenge to kind of distill this down to uh, whatever broadcast time that you had. But one of the one of the conversations that uh, that you were able to highlight, because I, I think the house, as you mentioned, inspired you to, was how VA mortgages were not available to, ve- to black veterans after World War II. And that affected property values in Hagerstown and particularly there on Jonathan Street. Is that an ongoing conversation that needs to be had? It it is. It's a very, uh, you know, I do history documentaries for a living. I'm not an historian, but I know a lot about history. And I grew up in New York, and I grew up in a very working-class, middle-class neighborhood, not unlike Hagerstown. And almost everybody in my neighborhood uh, lived in a house that was purchased with a VA mortgage because their fathers were vets of World War II or Korea. I just thought that was an opportunity that was available to anybody who had served. Well, it turns out that it wasn't. Um, VA mortgages, in order to get the the VA bill, um, the GI bill passed, uh, there were deals that had to be made. So one of them was that the federal government did not guarantee uh, loans in redlined areas, which the vast majority of redlined areas are in uh, African-American neighborhoods. So the people there, even if they had gone to World War II, even if they had been shot at, even if they lost a leg or came home with PTSD, uh, the African-American soldiers and vets were not able to partake of the VA mortgage. And I know from my generation, um, that was really the start of wealth building for most families. Um, you know, you bought the house with no money down or $50 down and paid a very small amount on your mortgage. And eventually, you know, you paid off the mortgage and, and it, the value of it raised. And that's how people, you know, spent $20,000 on a house in 1958. It's now worth six or seven or $800,000. And they built wealth that then could be used to tap into for businesses uh, or to pass on to their children. And that was an opportunity that was denied not only to African-Americans on Jonathan Street, but we actually show maps in New York and Boston um, two liberal bastions uh, where it was also true. In New York, we make the point there were 100,000 VA mortgages given out and only 60 of them went to African-Americans. Well, when we we started talking about, you know, the incident that alerted the, the property of Jonathan Street that occurred back in 2018, and obviously now it's 2024, uh, this is over 300 years of history condensed into, you know, a documentary that's that's just under an hour long. I mean, how massive is that undertaking kind of to peek behind the curtain. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot on the cutting floor that didn't make it into the film. I mean, how do you prioritize, you know, telling just such a robust history um, uh, around this particular topic? It's very, very difficult. That may have been the most difficult thing we had to do. Um, You know, I always joke that we're television people, so we tend to exist on the surface. And uh, we actually, the more and more we delved into this, the more and more there was to do. So our first cut, came in in almost an hour and a half. So there were large chunks that we actually had to take out. It's actually a fascinating, and and one of our challenges in this, because the program is airing all over the country, 
Uh, we have about 200 broadcasts that are already set in the first couple weeks of February. Um, we have to concentrate on how people in Pasadena or Oregon or Alabama will see this and why it's important to them. So there were some things that had to be jettisoned. For instance, in Hagerstown, one of the really interesting things is as uh, property outside of Hagerstown uh, was able to tap into the city's water supply for malls and for housing developments, the city never annexed them, which means that the city gets no tax revenue from them and is not for the past 40, 50, or 60 years, which is one of the reasons why they, they are always terminally having financial problems and that their services aren't as good as they could be. Well, that's a fascinating topic, but that's not something that happens in most cities and states across the country. So we said, you know what, in this particular case, we have to take that part out. Uh, we had to condense a lot of stuff down. Um, you know, we spent a couple minutes explaining what the concept of redlining is, because I don't think there's anyone in the world who necessarily understands it. Um, we spent a couple of minutes explaining who John Brown was and his raid on Harpers Ferry. Uh, a couple of minutes with uh, Dennis Fry narrating what happened at Antietam. Um, so that actually took time away from other things. So World War One just basically gets one or two sentences. And this is not meant to necessarily be the be-all to end-all history of Hagerstown, but we've been gratified in the couple of broadcasts that it's had already in the Washington area that people are contacting us and saying, you know, I, I've grown up in Hagerstown, I'm 70 years old, and I never knew most of this stuff. Well, well, speaking of some of the conversation that you had, I saw a, a really brief section of your interview with Richard Davis, who is one of the former owners. I mean, who are some of the people that are interviewed in this that people should look out for, the people that you reached out to to tell the story uh, in, in this documentary? Um, we had all the top people. Governor Moore came to Jonathan Street and was interviewed in the old uh, North Street School, which is now the Robert Johnson Community Center. Uh, Senator Van Hollen, Congressman Trone. But the most important interviews were for us were the 15 residents or former residents of Jonathan Street who all painted this very lively and vivid picture of, of what life was like. And I think it runs counter to what most people's perceptions are. I think if you say Jonathan Street right now, you get an immediate visceral reaction from most people. And what these interviews showed and what the documentary shows is that Jonathan Street for a very, very long time was an amazingly prosperous area. Um, the people in the neighborhood would go out into the wider Hagerstown community and work during the day, sometimes in the factory, sometimes as domestics, and then they come back and they really did not leave the neighborhood, um, and they spent the money in the neighborhood. So it was incredibly prosperous. There were dozens and dozens of uh, entrepreneurs who had everything from hat shops and shoe stores to you know, small groceries. There was the Holman Hotel there where a number of celebrities uh, stayed um, because that was the closest thing to John Brown's farm, which had been turned into a concert venue, which almost nobody out in the Hagerstown area knows. Um, so it really was very prosperous. It runs counter to the idea of what Jonathan Street was, but I think it shows what Jonathan Street and Hagerstown can be again. 
president of Three Roads Communications and executive producer of the House on Jonathan Street, Russ Hodge, has been our guest this morning. We should uh, point out there is a screening planned for February 18th at the Maryland Theater in Hagerstown. And I know there are other screenings as well. And that full uh, list of uh, how you can avail yourself on public television stations. Uh, So uh, how can folks find out more? Uh, Thank you for bringing that up, Marsha. First of all, the screening at the Maryland Theater is free. It's at 3 o'clock on February 18th, which is a Sunday afternoon. Um, Show up and watch the movie. Um, We also have all of our information about the documentary. It's available on thehouseonjonathanstreet.com. So we have photos and information and information about screenings. We actually have a screening this evening in Washington, D.C. at the Martin Luther King Library. Uh, It's the first screening that they are doing there since they spent millions of dollars renovating. So we're very thrilled about that as well. The documentary has gotten great reception and we're really gratified. And, uh, you know, I I think it really, really reflects well on on Jonathan Street and Hagerstown and the community that that they are supporting this, but that it is receiving such wide attention. Uh, A couple days ago, we were front page in the Baltimore Sun. Uh, and it was a good news story about Hagerstown that was in the Baltimore Sun on the front page. It wasn't murder or drug deals or something else. And that's, that's always a positive development. Very good. Well, I guess this morning, the president of Three Roads Communication and the executive producer of the House on Jonathan Street, Russ Hodge, thank you very much, sir, for giving us the time. Thank you both very much. Absolutely. Um, and again, that was uh, Russ Hodge in a very interesting conversation, certainly. And speaking of, we'll have another very interesting conversation on the other side of this break, so stay tuned. It is Panhandle Live. Broadcasting from the Hoppy Kerchival Building in Martinsburg, it's Panhandle Live. Welcome back to Panhandle Live here on WBPM and WCST. It's Luke Wiggs and Marsh Kavalik with you. Like I mentioned, if you missed any or part of that really interesting conversation we have with Russ Hodge, I was the executive producer of The House on Jonathan Street. We're going to be posting this episode on our Panhandle News Network Spotify coming up here in just a couple of moments. Uh, and Marsha, we've got our next guest joining us via phone as well. Always happy to have him in uh, via phone. 167th Airlift Wing Commander Colonel Marty Timko joins us. Welcome in. Hey, thanks for having me again. Thanks for being on. Uh, first of all, out of the gate, uh, the news broke this morning that uh, five Marines were killed uh, during a flight uh, military operation. So I you know, want to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah, so I think it's just another example of, of understanding the inherent risk uh, that goes along with uh, all military operations. Uh, I know uh, details are kind of sparse right now about causals and things like that, but um, my heart goes out to the, the family of the service members who have been involved. But, um, yeah, it's just one of those um, reminders, unfortunately, that uh, the men and women that serve in uniform um, this is what they're signing up for in the sense that, uh, you know, if it was easy, anyone would do it. But, uh, unfortunately this is one of those instances where, uh, things went awry and, and tragedy ensued. And yet you guys step up every day. Uh, we wanted to talk about what you were involved in all year, you know, kind of, a, we haven't really talked about much, uh, you know, the year in review that was in 2023. Uh, so brag on your folks. Oh, sure. And that's really easy to do. Um, so 23 was yet another busy year for the wing. Um, I, I kind of teased the wing members that um, I think they're only truly happy if their hair's on fire and <laughs> they're involved in all kinds of things. Um, 
So probably three big takeaways uh, from 23. Um, the wing did great uh, in with all the mission sets, but um, we contributed last year uh, to what we call the aeromedical evacuation channel. So the versatility of the C-17 uh, Globemaster III, which we fly, uh, one of the neat missions that we actually can do is we turn the cargo bay, uh, into, for lack of better terms, into a flying hospital. So what we can do with the aircraft, um, we have the normal crew, the normal flight crew, and then we also incorporate uh, aeromedical crew as well, which is going to be uh, flight surgeons, flight nurses, uh, medical technicians, and any other equipment or personnel that are needed and, and what the aircraft can do is we can go to various places around the globe, uh, pick up patients, and as long as they are stable enough that they can be they can fly uh, under physician care, we can get them to their next destination, which is normally like an, uh, a bigger medical facility. Uh, case in point, like in Europe, uh, that would be Landstuhl in Germany, which is a big American military hospital there or even bringing them back stateside uh, here in the Washington, D.C. Uh, area. You've got Walter Reed and Bethesda and those various places. So it's kind of a neat mission because usually when we're bringing the personnel back, um, it's the family that's there on the other end to meet them. So that's kind of that's kind of heartening as well. Um, another one that was pretty neat that we were involved in, uh, from the 167 standpoint, was uh, there was exercise Air Defender 23 last year, and um, it was the largest NATO exercise ever conducted in Europe, and the big bulk uh, from the U.S. forces uh, came from the National Guard. So that was kind of a, a feather in the cap for us and, and all the other Guard units that were participating. Um, pretty neat because uh, it really was – uh, probably the biggest airlift uh, for an exercise with NATO, um, really, you know, since the Berlin airlift. But uh, the 167th was the largest carrier for the for the C-17 side of the house, but there were also a bunch of other units involved as well. Um, and it was. It was, uh, it was a great way to kind of send a message um, to those that, you know, felt that maybe, you know, NATO was in decline or, you know, there wasn't a lot of, unity there within the uh within the alliance uh the exercise went a long way to message that nothing's further than the truth and then finally um just kind of keeping it local we did a uh, we did a readiness exercise here at base uh in august of last year and um i guess i kind of chuckled because uh i was a little worried you know for lack of a better term we call it war gaming so we're you know we're simulating uh, actual events and, and uh, things that could happen uh, when you're doing the mission. But um, for the most part, I, I don't think we upset any of the neighbors. Uh, we didn't take any angry phone calls of like, hey, what are you guys doing over there? So I was kind of joking with the wing that, um, well, because we're doing a lot of things all the time, I, I think they're just kind of used to this. <laughs> so, um, and they rolled with it really well. But um it was a good, uh, it was a really good effort, and it was actually kind of fun to incorporate uh, some of our Army Guard brethren and some other units uh, in with our exercise, which is kind of more of the norm going forward. It's not all about just you 
It's about uh, the integration and the support you're offering to other units as well. Well, I wanted to ask you, too, just ahead of the next of, of these drills, because I, I know we talked to you guys a lot ahead of the August drill so we could get the word out as well, because uh, mm-hmm. I think it's probably always good if folks who maybe don't live around the Air Guard know if there's something special going yeah. on there. No, I agree. I agree. And that's where um, Emily and, and the PA team uh, were super about getting the messaging out there, too. Because you're right. I, I wouldn't want somebody to feel like, oh, my goodness, what's going on over at the guard base right now, uh, you know, when they're hearing some interesting sounds or, or things such as that. Well, it's always interesting to, to kind of take a look on your guys' website and see what a lot of the airmen are getting up to. And one of the stories that, that caught my eye was something that happened in December, and it involved the world ultra marathon uh, could you expand on that a little bit there was uh, three airmen uh, three women that were awarded medals for over a thousand miles of training is that correct yes that is correct and i honestly and and i know these uh three ladies quite well um i'm i'm a jogger in the morning uh <laughs> i tend to get my pt in uh you know first thing in the morning so um I'm always impressed, uh, especially the, this time of year when it's pretty chilly in the morning and it's dark. Um, I can pretty much count on seeing those three out and about uh, with their routine. But, um, yeah, what a – I mean, first off, there's, that's something I never could do. There, you know, I'm, I'm not a distance runner. I was always a sprinter. So it's just super impressive. Um, and it really just kind of comes to the, you know, the diligence and the uh, commitment by the members because – you know, they're doing this all on their own time kind of thing, right? We um, Obviously, fitness is, is something we incorporate into our daily lives here uh, with our routine here on base, but um, the fact that they could actually train for, for distances such as that was, was pretty incredible. So we were, uh, we were all very proud of them. Um, and I think I, what I love the best about all three of them is how willing they are, you know, to kind of spread their talents uh, to maybe those that, you know, are struggling to get into a routine or maybe need a little help or encouragement, you know, to keep the routine going kind of thing. Those, you know, those are some of the first three that would be helping folks out such as that. Our guest this morning is 167, the Airlift Wing Commander, Colonel Marty Timko. I was looking at your Facebook page, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, posts where you're bragging on the, the folks there who've uh, gotten accolades. Also, some announcement uh, for folks who uh, have uh, military members in their family about scholarships. Also, a, a West Virginia National Guard Youth Camp uh, registration is ongoing. Um, so I know you guys have a lot going on, not only to serve the country, but also uh, specifically to serve the members and their families. Yeah, and that was um, that's always been the key tie-in, right? That's what makes us unique as a National Guard. Uh, it's the community relationship. You know, it's active duty. Uh, members were going to be moving in and out of the community because it's just the nature of the beast and where their next assignment takes them. But the beauty with the Guard is, you know, we come from the community and we live within the community that we serve. So, you know, it, it reminds me of another great highlight from last year. Um, we had various uh, charitable efforts that were, you know, and this was all through the, you know, efforts of, of the individual members to put these things together. But, you know, everything from, you know, having a Toys for Tots campaign uh, to, you um, the operations group, uh, the flyers, they call it Ops Adopts, where we go out to the local uh, elementary schools 
and, you know, virtually adopt one of the kids and their family to make sure that they have a good Christmas and that there's there's some goodness under the tree uh, Christmas morning to, you know, the sleep in heavenly peace drive, you know, that was bringing and bedding uh, for those in need, uh, especially uh, the youth of the community. So, you know, what a wonderful outreach, um, you know, that's driven internally, you know, to help the, you know, the counties here of the Eastern Panhandle. Well, you mentioned serving the community, but what if there's somebody in the community that's interested in serving as well? I mean, you talked about all the unique opportunities, seeing the world as a, as a member of the 167th, for people that are kind of interested uh, in learning more and potentially getting involved with the work that you guys do. I mean, what do those steps look like? Yeah, so the big part is they want to get in, uh, in touch with our recruiting team. And, and the biggest thing with the recruiting team is, you know, and I jokingly say, you know, it's not just a sales pitch, right, to like, hey, this is why, you know, you got to join. But what we're going to do is, you know, once a member expresses interest and, and, and maybe there's something that they're really interested in, you know, like, hey, you know, between the, the maintainers that are working the aircraft or the, the firefighters that are, you know, serving, you know, not just the base but the local community or, you know, the, the flyers that are actually getting into the aircraft, we, we will actually go through working with recruiting to, you know, let's take the member on a little tour. Let's, let's have them talk to the people that, you know, maybe in a career field that they're interested in just to add a little personal touch to it, right? Because, you know, it seems a little overwhelming. And, you know, I, too, have, you know, two young men in my household for sons. And, you know, there's a lot of questions sometimes. And maybe you're just not sure what's even the right question to ask. And, you know, if somebody wants to show interest, we'd be more than happy just to kind of, you know, answer some of those questions and, and maybe lead them, you know, down a path where they, they are going to be committed to, to service in uniform. Well, our guest this morning, 167th Airlift Wing Commander, Colonel Marty Timko. And as always, sir, we really appreciate you giving us the time. All right. I appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. We've got one more break to take. We'll wrap up the show on the other side for today. So stay tuned. You're listening to Panhandle Live. Broadcasting from the Hoppy Kerchival Building in Martinsburg, it's Panhandle Live on the Panhandle News Network. Welcome back. Final segment of Panhandle Live. As always, driven by Country Roads, Tyron Auto, taking you home with full-service auto care with a higher level of care with two locations to proudly serve you in Martinsburg and Hedgesville. Online, too, at countryroadstire.com today. Marsha, let's keep the conversation going with our two next guests to join us in studio. This is another exciting thing that is happening in our community, and joining us to talk about it, Leonard and Helen Harris. Welcome into both of you. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Should we talk about how Leonard was here just under the wire? <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're glad you're both here today. So um, there's kind of a neat uh, documentary happening. It's going to be at the Apollo Civic Theater Saturday, February 17th. We'll talk about those times again. But talk about the documentary, The History of the Sumner Raymer School. Okay. This is a fascinating and exciting time um, that this um, lady, her name is Faye Stomp, and her and a group of ladies came from the woods to tour the museum. And they were very excited to try to figure out what it was that they could do in order to uh, introduce the museum to more people in Berkeley County, but even our neighbor uh, counties. And um, just felt that there had to be a way that Leonard and I somehow get recorded uh, so people can be more familiar or know more about the black history in Berkeley County. And uh, she came up with this wonderful idea, and uh, she was the one that 
worked and got grants and got sponsorship and um, is being sponsored under the NAACP. I think she's the education person or whatever um, with the NAACP. But, um, you know, here we are. We're going to do a document. Well, we have done a documentary. They're still editing uh, the documentary. And, um, you know, it points out none of us at least telling our history of attending the school. You can notice on there that I am the youngest person on there. Uh, Where where does Leonard fall on that scale? Are we going to ask that or no? (laughs) Maybe we won't. I will say this. He's not the oldest. Okay. But, but, uh, you know, we were able to tell our history, and, you know, it's recorded. Uh, It's being uh, narrated by an actor, uh, a professional actor, and he's also a musician. His name is Kevin Mambo. So if anybody watched All My Children years ago, Mm. they would have noticed Kevin on there. But also, uh, he still does some acting, and as recent in a movie called Rustin. Okay. So I don't know how many people are familiar with Rustin, but Rustin was really the backbone or the person behind um, the march on Washington that was done by Martin Luther King. Mm. So to put this together, this kind of documentary, I mean, we always say this when folks come in and they talk to to us about history. um, Man, we need to get these interviews in. Uh, Folks need to talk about this. Uh, We need to capture this for future generations. And uh, Leonard, it's happening. Yes. So you were interviewed, right? (laughs) Yes. uh, It's been very exciting uh, to get the history out on the Seminole Ramer School. Uh, we have had the museum for years. I've been the president for 33 years or more. And uh, it's now we begin to have it open for, it's been open for the public, but it's going to be more open for the public once they see uh, what they're doing at the Powell Theater and all. So, and it's a lot of history there over the years. And, uh, it's, it's really been something very worthwhile, and we've been waiting on it. And, when, uh, when someone interviews you for mm-hmm. you know this kind of documentary and asks you the history, were there things that you realized that you had just forgotten, but you experienced all of those and the other, the other guys and ladies had experienced? Were there things that you're like, wow, I'm dredging up these memories of this school? Yes, um, we've had, I've been around, and I listened to some of the other ones, and it brings back different memories that maybe uh, I didn't think of and they all experienced. And uh, uh, in the years that we was there, you know, uh, of the segregation that has been going on in Martinsburg, the separation of so many of the blacks who had to pass three or four schools to get to the Seminole Ramer School. They were walking. Yeah, yeah, Mm. they was walking. At times they didn't have automobiles and, uh, and they was walking, and and how the school itself. Now, like, for instance, just like the kids nowadays, they get an inch of snow and close up. Mm-hmm. We, we never closed up. The school stayed open because we lived in a circle like the hill, and those people could walk, and they walked knee-high snow. You come to, you come to school. And same way with the ones that had was on buses, uh, if they couldn't make it in, then they had to make it up. But it was uh, very interesting considering all the years it went by and and some of the, the good and the bad in Martinsburg. 
and that's the way it was at that time. But uh, we have come, and and uh, we have learned a lot, and we've become a family, everybody. Can I ask you, Leonard, what years were you at that school? Do you remember? Uh, was in the 40s, late 40s, probably. I was there. So I was there when the school was Sumner School. Mm-hmm. And from Sumner, it went to Raymer School. So that's why it's named Sumner Raymer School. Uh, and it's the only school in Berkeley County that ha- it was named after the principal and a black principal. Mr. Raymer was a black man. And there's not another school was named after a principal. So I wanted to ask Helen, uh, you got interviewed too. Did the folks interviewing you seem a little surprised at some of the things that you guys brought out? Because you've talked, you've talked about the school on the, and your experience in the past. And, you know, sometimes you guys didn't get the same kind of supplies that the other kids in other oh. schools were getting. Well, and the uh, interviewers, uh, several of them were from the schools, you know, so you had the younger generation who were hearing some of this. So you could see on their face how surprised they were. And um, especially with me, I went there for three years before I transferred out. Uh, and because can you tell us when the last year that you were there was? I was, the, um, the last year I was there was uh, the spring of 1963. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then that fall of uh, 1963 is when uh, we enter into high street school at the time and so was that because of desegregation yes it was because of uh desegregation and uh we were one of the ones too that even when we went to when i went there it was rainbow school uh we passed a few schools in order to get there because we weren't allowed into the white schools and this is not ancient history this no, is it's 60 16 years and some change exactly you and were there you look at even when um I went, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education had already happened. You know, so therefore, the school should have already been desegregated. But um, it wasn't, you know, and it, it took a while in West Virginia and um, even in this area for them to start that process. And um, there is Jean Carter, Gloria Jean Carter on here who gives her story. And she decided, I forget what year it was, but she called up the superintendent of school, who was Dr. Mudge at the time, and said, hey, I want to go to Martinsburg High School. Can I go to Martinsburg High School? And she said his response was, well, I can't stop you. And so she took a few people with her, and they went in to Martinsburg High School. What year was that? I know she graduated, I think she said 1958 or 1959. So you're looking at somewhere around wow. 1956. Does she tell that story? She you, does tell okay. She does tell that story. So, so that's that's a good story to hear. We're running short on time, but I want you to set up how folks can, can see this documentary. It's called <clears throat> The History of the Sumner Raymer School. Yes, just uh, February the 17th at 2 o'clock at the Apollo Theater. The doors will open at 1 so please be there. You don't need a ticket. Just bring yourself, bring your family, bring your friends, and you will be uh, amazed at what people gone through as far as the school, but also just dealing with racism in Berkeley County. I'm so glad that they're documenting some of these stories. I'm sure there are plenty more that could be documented as well, and, and folks can always learn more about the Sumner Raymer School and do those tours as well. Yes.
So Leonard and Helen Harris, uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Anything else you want to let the listeners know before I have to let you go? I'm good. I'm just uh, happy that the story is finally being told more so and that people are getting more and more familiar and finding out that that school is there. Because Leonard even had visitors from Berkeley Springs yesterday. So the word is getting out. We're really happy about that. Leonard and Helen, thank you so much for being in with us. Thank Thank you. you. That's going to do it for today's show. If you missed any or part of today's show, we're going to be posting it on our pin handle News Network Spotify coming up here in just a couple of moments. Stay tuned at the top of the hour. At 11.06, we'll have another edition of Metro News Talk Line. Uh, so stay tuned for that. For Marcia, I've been Luke, and we will talk to you tomorrow. and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here too.